My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is another episode of Euripides Humanities from Trident Theater here in Sheridan, Wyoming. I am Aaron Odom, and I am glad to have you back. If you have not caught up, you are in part two of our forensic analysis of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark and its original production on Broadway. Joining me again is my new friend, famed producer, Richard Jordan. Hello, Richard. Hey, Aaron, again from London. Good to be good to be yeah. back with you. You know, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, fantastic it, it, to be uh, picking up this crazy story again. It feels weird and hammy to have an introduction like that because right now, before we started recording, we've been sitting here talking about musicals and everything, and for the last forty-five minutes. But hi, good to see you again. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm going to go ahead and just jump right back into this so we can get we can get let's, this going. Because, let's just uh, jump, as we might say, jump back into the net of the web of the web of this show. <laughs> get stuck in all the gooey. Yeah, I can't think of any. All yeah, right. In all the gooey detail. Yeah. So part two. Here we go. When we left off last time, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark had begun its preview period on November 25th, 2010. To put it lightly with significant overstatement. It did not go as planned. <laughs> the play was simply not finished and not ready to be put in front of an audience. With set pieces unfinished or just not built yet, Spider-Men and other characters having their amazing rigging special effects malfunction, and only one injury that no one in the house knew about until two days later, it was looking pretty dismal for our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. It's a sad oh. thing, isn't it? I mean, I think it was also, as we know, there was a momentum of people now not really wanting it quite to work. There was, it was a yeah. new story. So yeah. it, hadn't, it had lost that sort of energy of will of excitement. Now it was an energy of what will happen next and almost right. a, a fatalism that had taken over. And, and I, I felt quite quite sad for them in some ways with, within that, as well, you would for any, any <laughs> colleagues or producers who finally got something to the stage. You know, it, it, it just makes me think in, in a situation like this, where the line from genuine excitement and buzz for a thing turns into schadenfreude. <laughs> you know, where do we go from, I really want to see this succeed to, I can't wait to see this fail. Where is yeah. that tipping point? You know, I mean, is there is there one for a musical? Like if it lasts a certain amount of time before it really does successful, is it just going to go into that territory of being condemned? I don't know. Well, I think we have that interesting thing with um, musicals today 
which is crazy that we still hark back to a 40 year old hit, which was Cats. Yeah. Cats, you know, the musical that, that against all the odds came in and conquered Broadway and the West End and in the West End stayed for what, 21 years. Right. And, it's, it, and you still hear today producers and composers and things, if it's not quite going right or it's, it's a bit off the wall as a musical, it could be another Cats. And actually, but it's it was so successful. <laughs> well, yeah, but Cats, of course, was not successful to get to the stage. And that's right. why, in a way, when you're being perhaps blindsided with problems or this sort of quest for gold, as it might be, mm-hmm. Cats becomes that example because you really have to look at the story of Cats to understand, you know, the fact that they couldn't raise the money. People thought the idea was completely crazy. I mean, far stupider yeah. than trying to do Spider-Man the musical because, you know, right. the idea of, of Cats prancing about on the stage was seemed to be there was no There was no lyricist. It was T.S. Eliot, the, 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 the poet. So, you know, the, <laughs> right. poems, the poems were being put together. You know, it was in a theatre that nobody wanted to put a show into, which was the, right. the New London Theatre. So that was mm-hmm. another one. So, you know, you've got all these things stacked against it. Even in previews, they were asking the cast if they knew anyone who had money. You might be able to <laughs> Right. Ask, them, you know, ask what they could put into it. opening night of the show in London. Um, you know, in 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 May uh, in 1981 when it opened, uh, they had a, a bomb scare on the opening night, so the theatre had to be evacuated. Oh my God, that's right! You told so me that. all that stuff ah. against it, you know, and this complete sort of. I mean, we, we look at it now and say, "Wow, Cats! What a great score! What a great musical!" You know, I mean, obviously, some people will have a different opinion uh, than the, 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 the we might have to that. But the thing about it is, it's a show that's lasted the course. And because yeah. it's become this multi-global hit, because 1981, you've got to realize how radical that musical was. Oh, yeah. It changed yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It opened up global licensing of musicals mm-hmm. in a massive way. So even now, when a Spider-Man comes along or something that seems just as, as crazy or off the wall, Cats, strangely, people still hark back to, to remember that it did happen once. And right. if that's the case, then surely history can repeat mm-hmm. itself. Okay, it wasn't just a one-off, right? Surely that can happen again. And that's, I think, <laughs> why sometimes so many musicals fall through a crack and fail, because actually you're being blindsided by something that happened, actually a particular set of circumstances. Yep. But actually, it's actually been about the construction at the heart of it, the architecture of the show. And actually, yeah. if that show's crazy, that's fine. But the show might work if you've got the architecture of that right into the linear structure of how a, how a musical works. If you look at, at, at Hamilton, there's as much a Vita in it, mm. in, in way it's his influences and structures and those ideas of how you oh, take yeah. an off-the-wall character and use that. Because if you'd, I don't know, if you'd picked uh, Abraham Lincoln for your subject rather than Alexander Hamilton, well, the audience would have probably known lots, lots more about it. So it would have become, in right. a way, far more special. But, you know, if you take Eva Peron, well, British mm-hmm. people, when that show opened in 1979, we didn't know a lot of no the Argentinian dictators. Right. So actually it worked because you weren't <laughs> second-guessing You weren't second guessing the show. I'd argue the same with Les Miserables. When Labour Les Miserables first exploded in, what, the 80s in, in, in the West End, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. I guarantee a large percent of the audience probably saw that show had never read Les Miserables. And if they did, they probably <laughs> knew certain facts of Hugo's novel that they've perhaps picked up on as they've come to Victor Hugo's novel. Right. So they might have known Valjean stole a loaf of bread. They might have known there was this. And this. But therefore, when those facts come back in the same as Hamilton, with Alexander Hamilton, when those facts come back, they're familiar and they're reassuring, but they're not enough to be knowing and second-guessing what's coming next. Yes. And actually, because yes. of that, those shows succeed. But you've got to remember, I mean, these musicals were not written to necessarily run for 21 years. Cats becomes no. a phenomenon that changes that. So Cats really creates commercialism of a musical yeah. on a multi-global yeah. scale. That doesn't mean that the art form's not there in the same way, because it certainly is inherent in a lot of these musicals. But the mm-hmm. whole thing has the whole thing has changed in, a, in an incredibly different way. I mean, right. know, we're not talking about, you know, the, even the golden age of musicals, even West Side Story shows that were playing for 20-odd years on a stage, almost is unthinkable. And actually so maybe, that is what starts to change. 
Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe you had an anticipatory crowd, an anticipatory crowd who saw this package. Like we said on the last episode, if this would have landed on your desk, on even my desk, and they said, I've got Julie Taymor, I've got you two, I've got Spider-Man, and we're going to bring this to Broadway in New York, uh, we would have gone, this is it. Wow. Yeah, this, this is, is it. This is this is a genius show right. because you think about the tourists and everything, and then of mm-hmm. course you, you you've made your show too expensive, which we talked about the break right. and the cost of that. But there's another very important difference that happened between Spider-Man and also um, uh, Cats mm-hmm. in that linear time of all that period. Radio stopped playing musicals. Right. So you could get a destination oh. theatre show. So if you yes. think about, um, you know, you might have this as a designated, you know, imagine some Saris or one of those stations where there's designated musical theatre content for musical theatre fans. Right. But if you think about it, a lot of people were discovering these musical songs as hit records. And yes, mm-hmm. there was sometimes a concept album. But, you know, it, with U2 behind it, Bono and the Edge, there should have been no reason why the playtime of Spider-Man wasn't going out on radio stations with some right. of those tracks. You have to realise what a devastating and damaging situation that has been in changing sometimes the connection that audiences make in a way to musicals and scores. You know, these were hit parade songs. So these songs were being heard by an audience that wasn't just inherently musical theatre fans. It was being mm-hmm. heard by a much wider audience who would hear that and say, that sounds interesting. Wow, that's a show. I didn't know that that was what musicals were like or what theatre was like. I'd like to right. go and see them. And it seemed to be suddenly radio executives were saying, oh, musical. No, 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 no. You know, keep away from that. Oh, <laughs> you know. And, and actually, it's just a really interesting and, and strange right. uh, journey that, that seems to have happened. I don't understand why it happened. But it almost like musicals didn't become sexy anymore. And yet, actually, yeah. when we're looking at it, there's a heck of a lot of sexiness with Hamilton and all these shows popping up, but it's not being embraced. Uh, yeah, I mean, what do you got? You got Chicago, you've got Nine, you've got, uh, you know, all these shows that, yeah. Anyway, so here's another thing that kind of, I, I, you know, looking back at it, here we go again, we're dissecting this. As I also mentioned in the last episode, the production purposefully and secretly withheld preview invitations to official reviewers for the press for the initial preview performances. So it was almost like they had something to hide. <laughs> you know, yeah. they wanted to generate well, a buzz from people who didn't know musicals. Well, of course, the whole like. etiquette of previews has changed, Aaron, hasn't yeah. it? So okay. on Broadway, there's a day when the producer locks the show and critics can come in over a, over a week often to see it. I rather like that because right. they see it with a genuine audience. In London, they have effectively the opening night, which is also the press night, so all the journalists come on the same day and review everything. Of course, what used to happen was that meant that people were not writing about something, effectively reviewing it in 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 previews in a way. Than, mm-hmm. than, you know, so if things were going wrong, yes, you might see it covered in a short newspaper story, but you weren't having people going out and suddenly sticking it on Twitter straight after that performance, which probably helped a show like Cats or indeed you know, some of those 80s musicals, because inevitably there would have been production problems through those previews. Oh, yeah. wouldn't have meant that actually... Yeah. You know, Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so in the street were actually going out and writing their own social media blog about what they wanted to see about the show. <laughs> and I mean, and this is, a, I can say from a producing standpoint, this is a tremendous problem because you see, let's suppose that person comes out and writes about the show before the critics have been in to review it. So ah, now you go onto your search yeah. engine and type in, I don't know, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. So the first thing that comes up is then someone who you're not sure, is this a reviewer or is this a blogger? It's someone who's writing about the show. Right. If they've not enjoyed it immediately, there's something there that starts to put people off because until it's the out main there. reviews have come out, it's yep. out there on this search engine is the first things that start yep. that start popping up. And it is yep. 
it is a big change. I mean, this was the huge problem that Andrew Lloyd Webber faced when Love Never Dies, the sequel to Phantom of the Opera, mm-hmm. came into the West End at the Adelphi Theatre. Again, it was a early previews, production problems, you're working through that. But two um, fabled bloggers came along and, and rechristened the show Paint Never Dries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and of course, the problem being is that a newspaper picked up on that title in the previews. It got ran in, yep. as, a, as a jokey headline in, in a number of papers, and people said, doesn't sound very good, as does it? I don't think I want to go and see that. And it yeah. was very hard to shake over off that tag that had been found on that show. And with Spider-Man, it's a tremendous problem because, as we all know, everyone now today is a theatre critic on social media and everyone oh, yeah. wants to get out saying something. So to be that first person out of the gate saying something and picking it up or being picked up on Twitter can give you a lot of bandwidth. And, of mm-hmm. course, as a result of that, there is this expectation of people almost willing it to say, wow, that didn't quite work great. I, can, I, can oh, I, I can't way. wait for it to fail and, 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 course, and to vindicate what I said. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, <laughs> that... Yeah, and actually, and ironically, often... You know, people are looking, you know, people are quite fatalist. So actually, the it's the, it's the something going wrong that people want to read more than when it's going yeah, right. Yeah, right. And, you know, Spider-Man, yep. by its nature, of by the time it had come with all the delays, there was a palpable expectation of, of, of saying, what is this going to be like? And I, and, and, you know, yeah. and if it's, yeah. if it's bad, it's great. And if it's good, that's okay. But, you know, it's, not going to get <laughs> but I'd rather it be bad. Interest, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you think about how many flop musicals we sit and reminisce over. We often don't talk about it in the same way the hits in quite the same way. Right, right. Well, for this one, the reviewers launched their own secret initiative and bought their own preview tickets so they could actually publish something. <laughs> Not the first time it's done. It has been done on other shows. but Oh, I'm sure. Is, I'm sure. But it is, uh, it is now much more of a statement. Like, oh, well, if you don't give me a ticket, I'll just buy my ticket and come along. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they can't stop them. Well... Of course, in this one, as you and I both know, based on the previews, the reviews kind of more or less across the board hung the show to dry. And some comparing them to, quote, the worst dress rehearsal of a high school musical, end quote. Now, I don't know if that's fair. Well, I saw Spider-Man. What did I say? I I saw Spider-Man after it had opened in its first cast. And I, I had a good time with it, actually. I, I mean, I didn't think it was the greatest musical I'd ever seen in terms of, of, of score and book, but I certainly you know, wasn't unentertained in, 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 in right. watching it. But the, right. the thing about Spider-Man is it, it's also assessing what is its, its, its target audience, you know? Yes. Is the New York Times theatre critic coming in to see it, ben, at that time, I guess, Ben Brantley, really going to be the person who ultimately is actually the audience that you're targeting who's going to be mm-hmm. buying those tickets. I always look back to a show like uh, We Will Rock You, which was the, the Queen musical that came right. in and got universally bad reviews in, in London from papers, you know, like the main broadsheet newspapers. But actually, it wasn't their target audience. You know, they were very clever because they invited, you know, Brian May and, and a lot of their rock and roll friends and yeah. asked them what they thought. So there were quotes like, you know, I loved it from, you know, well-known rock stars and things. Well, mm-hmm. if you are a music fan and a Queen fan, you're probably going to be more influenced by if there's a familiar rock star's name saying, I like that show, than necessarily what the theatre critic is going to say. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And actually, in a way, that's also a question about, you know, you can hang out a show to dry, but who is actually reading that review that's important to you on the strategic level of what the show is going to be as right, a commercial right. entity. Now, it's incredibly important if it's, say, a new play and you're appealing to that drama audience. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you're going for that large domestic, you know, and international crowd, yeah, the reviews are certainly helpful, mm-hmm. but it, it may not necessarily be quite as bad as it, as, it, as it could be 
in the situation of the show possibly being invincible that could swing through those to be right. able to, to succeed. I mean, Wicked, don't forget, got pretty lame reviews from a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, yeah. But actually, do you know what? I guarantee a lot of the audience that that, that, that comes in from to see Wicked has probably never, ever read the New York Times review. I do kind of want to segue away from the reviews just a little bit. And I don't know if I want to go through all of this, but I might. <laughs> it was the original script that had a lot of people shaking their heads. They, yeah. They'd made a mistake, as we talked about before, by focusing it more on Arachne. They had focused it on Spider-Man. And yes. actually, you needed to pull that back and really shake that up a little bit. Uh -huh. They got themselves almost into a block of a corridor on this one trajectory of story, and they couldn't get, the, they couldn't right. get their heads right. up. So you know what? I'm going to make an executive decision here. I think we could talk about the, the basic script and plot line, but what I think I'm going to do instead is say, act one had everything you needed for the musical, and then act two was more or less supplementary. Yeah. yeah. Act two didn't know where it had to go. In fact, yeah. act one started, and then it started to rip quite well, because, you know, mm -hmm. the start of act one, when he was, if you listen to the album, you know, there's, there's, there's a real emotional heart of where you start to get into this, this character of yes. uh, and start to, yeah. you know, you really get into Peter Parker's soul a little bit. And then mm -hmm. the second half, it just becomes more labored about let's stick in this green goblin. At the end, it ends up with a sort of green goblin fight with, with, um, uh, you know, Spider-Man in the sky. And then it didn't know whether it was playing cartoon or real life or quite where it was trying to land. Right. And right. the green goblin character didn't, you know, extend in the way it should have done. And it hit a mm -hmm. problem because it started with a second act number, which was a, a freak like me needs company where he yeah. sort of brought out these other characters to kind of like sort of fight with him on the streets of New York. It then started to do too much. It became overladen. If they just stuck with this trajectory of this relationship between Green Goblin and Spider-Man and maybe the Arachne character who seemed a bit, you know, a bit of a confusing character in the original version, it, mm -hmm. it changed mm -hmm. as it went along. You actually started to introduce more characters at the start of the second half, which didn't really go anywhere. And, and they didn't and, need to be and, there. It, and they didn't it, need to, to be there. They're very nice costumes at the start of oh, the yeah. number, but you, had, but you had nowhere to go after that with that number. Well, my problem with introducing those new characters is they had introduced so many characters that weren't part of the canon. And really, when you're talking about your fan base, they know these characters. They know them really well. Like, you know, you might have a character sing a line that is convenient for moving the song along. And that's where that diehard fan is going to go, that character would never say that, you know? So now you've just introduced five new characters or six new characters, one of whom isn't even in the comics at all or in the movies. And already you've, you've stretched their willingness to follow you by having Arachne be a character that they should kind of follow and be interested in. Now, I've seen this happen where a character is introduced outside of like the print uh, in the comics medium. And then because of that character is so popular, um, uh, Harley Quinn, Harley Quinn in the yeah. Batman series, for example, it was introduced in the animated series, but became such a popular character. They added her as canon into the whole thing. And, and, and that worked. Arachne was not going to work. Yeah. And, and the problem you've, you probably you've got is, um, you know, musicals at the, the heart are quite simple in the sense that you have to really focus on what's the emotional hark and the, the, the construction of this show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with emotion. And the moment you start to 
add in these 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 sort of like superfluous characters that suddenly pop up, which don't make really sense that they're there and they don't seem to really connect. But you're also pulling away from the emotional arc of the story, where actually right. I think there would have been a very interesting emotional journey between Green Goblin and, and, and Peter Parker, which which never really gets to where it gets. And of course, right. that leaves the, the Arachne story that's defined in Act One, but has nowhere to go in Act Two because it, you've it labeled it with all this other stuff mm-hmm. and suddenly the show becomes boring. Well, there's a couple things that I have an issue with with that specifically. Because if what we were trying to do was capture on to the popularity of a character in a franchise who's huge in film right now, then go with what is going well on Broadway right now and just adapt one of those original scripts. You know, you have an outstanding hero character. You have an outstanding tragic villain character. And the first Spider-Man movie that Sam Raimi did told that story really well. And I think you could have injected some good songs that that could have uh, fueled that a little bit further or made us understand the character a little bit further. Just to call, just call it an, an adaptation of the, of the original play. And also or, uh, the fact being movie. is that we know with film and with animation and, and animated books, there's a lot you can do with fantasy and special effects that you can, you can do so much on a stone. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. But ultimately the glue of a theater show is actually about not the effects. It's about the emotional right. part of what that right. story in that book is. And that's the second half of Spider-Man became about effects. And it yeah. was sort of trying to dazzle you. Yep. And actually, in a way, it was then trying to dazzle you for very weak book writing in a way. Right. And, and also right. the magician saying, don't listen to this. I'm just going to fly this guy around the stage a few more times. Right. And you're going to be pretty amazed now by what happens. And it, yeah, The 11 o'clock number didn't <laughs> exist. The 11 o'clock mm-hmm. number in Spider-Man was having a fight in the, in, yeah. in, in the sky. And yep. actually, it wasn't a song. It should have been a song. So suddenly you weren't well, invested in these characters anymore. You were just waiting for the next, the next trick to happen. And think about that. I don't know if 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 you saw the original preview of it, but that first that fight that happens over the crowd in Act Two ended Act One in the original version. Mm-hmm. So so you have the Green Goblin dying at the end of the first act. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and you go. Well, we yeah, told so you the story. Given yourself nowhere to go. Actually, I think I, I you know, it's, it's funny. I'm, these different versions. I saw Spider-Man. I think three, if not four, times mm-hmm. in different incarnations, and it's quite funny when you start to think about how things mesh right. and how things go. I think I did. Now, I think you you mentioned. I think I did think that because Arachne became so much of a defined character in that first version yeah. in the second act. Yes, and then in the next version, Green Goblin took over at the end and they said, yep. well, actually the flying's the, 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 the trick. So once you, you've seen the flying, you've sort of got really nowhere else to go. I mean, it's kind of like the King Kong problem. Once, with King Kong yep. the musical, once you've revealed the aim, you, you, mm-hmm. you, don't have a, you don't have very far to go afterwards because the audience has mm-hmm. seen that. So you've got to work out when you reveal or when you do a trick in a show, it's really important as to when you decide that you want to show that. Right. Because actually you've really got to back it up really strongly with what happens next. Because yep. once you've done that reveal, then where, where do you go next with it? And you've really got to have a pretty strong you know, hand of cards right. up your sleeve for what you're going to do next. Well, and, and not only that, there, there are a couple things with comparing a character in modern mythology to a character in Greek mythology that you have to understand. In Greek mythology, most of the characters and their fates have to do with some sort of temptation of the gods or challenge of the gods. And their punishment or whatever happens to them is because 
they have challenged the gods. And now this is this is supposed to show you, Greek society, what you're not supposed to do about challenging the gods. Now, in modern mythology, anybody can have some sort of happenstance thing happen to them and become something great. So you, Joe Schmo, could have been bitten by a spider and endowed with these amazing powers that you had to figure out how to balance your life around them. So it wasn't anything about fate or destiny or anything. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And now he's got this gift that he has to decide, do I do anything with this? Do I keep it to myself? What can I do with this? I can impress the girl with this. Ooh, that might be kind of cool. And then I think one of the fundamental things that they got wrong with this script was that he chooses to be Spider-Man in the books because his uncle Ben is killed by a carjacker who Spider-Man could have stopped as Peter Parker. He let the guy go. And then he realizes my choice led to this. I can't have anybody else have to make this kind of a choice. So by having Arachne endow him with this and, and have it be his destiny, that's taking so much of what we appreciate in this culture, in this time, away from the character. And that's a huge problem then for the fans because the fans have an expectation yep. of what they what they want to see. So you're not yep. serving the fans in that particular in that mm-hmm. particular way. In fact, almost in a way, it's not exactly like you're insulting them, but what you are doing is almost trying to say, "I've got to create my own stamp on this, and I'm going right. to give this sort of uber intelligent thing of saying, look, it's all linked to Greek mythology because actually, you know, we can find this other layer on it when actually that layer right. may not entirely exist in the way right. that it's it's being positioned, sort of suggested well, it is." And then Arachne even adds more to the character that's never been put into anything that your fans are going to know. She endows him with his costume, the iconic red and blue costume and the lyrics. They're they're great lyrics, but the lyrics say, for every heart that bleeds will color your world red. So the red in the costume and the sorrow in the night is the blue you cannot shed. Has nothing to do with, he just picked two opposing colors. They looked really good and flashy. Because yeah. that's what Peter Parker did in the books. <laughs> yes. He went, this yeah. looks great and it will conceal my identity. Yeah. You've really got to justify why you're making that choice. And, and I don't think the the adaptation, or certainly those early versions of Spider-Man ever actually really explained that or why they were doing that. And you hit that a problem with the, with the fans. Because if mean, your fans aren't on side with you, who mm-hmm. are the beloved... And, you know, we're talking about serious diehard fans of spider-man you know these guys and girls have a real respect for stan lee's writing and the craft and they know these stories inherently it's like you're suddenly coming to something and saying coming out and suddenly revealing that darth vader's (laughs) not you know change it and say well actually isn't i'm actually not i'm actually not his father actually i'm going to rewrite i'm going to rewrite this and and it always is on that sort of level because this is such a critical point in the story is how he becomes spider-man in the the book right then, you know, you're talking 2010. We've already had a trilogy of movies establishing who this is, and it's reached a worldwide audience. So if you're going against that... It suddenly feels quite arrogant. And don't forget, you know, the movies are quite truthful, certainly the the early movies as well, to, to the books. I think this all harkens back to David Garfinkel, just as a fledgling producer, going, you know what? Let her do it. Just let her go, and she'll come up with something amazing. And don't forget, Marvel are not theater makers. They, no, they, they, they've no. got experience in the movie business, but mm-hmm. they're not coming at this as people that they, you know, they're more fledgling theater people in this. In, in right, this right. 
And at that time, you did not have the MCU as it exists today. You did not have Kevin Feige at the top of this. You had this guy I mentioned last time, Avi Arad, who, when Tamor says, well, if Arachne's out, then I'm out. He went, whoa, okay, hold on, hold on. Let's, okay, we, we can talk about this. It's the same with anything. If, you, if, you, if, you, if your plumbing breaks down, you want to hire the person who's the expert who you think is going to fix it. You right. can do it. So if you're mm-hmm. looking at what is a musical and this person has come and had one of the biggest hit musicals of all time on yep. the stage, that covers a multitude of sins because look at how successful that was. And do you yeah. know what? If she can do that with this, then she can do the same with Spider-Man. It's interesting because Disney, <laughs> uh, you know, certainly had a strong hand with, you know, Judy Tamor and what they were doing. Mm-hmm. They come to it with a lot more theatre experience. So Thomas yeah. Schumacher and the team who were dealing with that, you know, there was a there's a very strong steering hand. What you don't have in this Spider-Man story is perhaps that same steering hand that's, that's coming there. You, so, I mean, Marvel is no smaller didn't than at all. Disney in terms of its entity, but you haven't got that... You haven't no. got that hand staring with it. No, no. And that, yeah, you had these people telling Julie, hey, no, you've got to go in this direction here. Please make it go in this direction. And she goes, oh, okay, fine. Here, the, she said, whatever you want to do, go for it. And it's so, also interesting, isn't it, that Disney, who had, as we talked about before, taken on Marvel, did not want to do Spider-Man. But they didn't hey, want to go back to work with Judy Tamer again on, on, that particular, on that particular property. I have so, a feeling they just looked at all of the numbers and everything and went, uh... We'll be fine. We have this Avengers thing coming. <laughs> I, I think you're in an interesting situation because by the time Disney comes to the table and saying, well, this is a complete disaster. <laughs> right. uh, you know, this is never going to make any money. And, you know, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense what's 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 going on now. Why, why do we going. put our stink on this right now? We don't need to. We've got no. enough irons in the fire. Let's get back to some of the juicier parts of this little production. And thanks for allowing me to go off script there a little bit with uh, the actual storyline because that... That to me is crucial to this show's success. If you can't please the fans, then they're not gonna they're not gonna be excited about it. Now, despite the reviews of this insanely ambitious script, previews trudged on. By this time, it had been determined that the cost of running the show on a weekly basis was around $1.4 million. Now, I should also mention that the average running budget for an entire run of a Broadway musical at this time was around 10 to 15 million for the entire production. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong on that or not. I, no, I, I mean, I mean that's, kinda... that's, uh, that's uh, probably a fair, uh, a fair cost for getting a show. And I mean, you've got to look that Spider-Man is it, interesting. There's a lesson that should have been learned and it wasn't learned on mm-hmm. Spider-Man, which was that they should have looked at what had happened to Lord of the Rings, which had happened only a few years earlier. Oh, yeah. So, you wanted to talk so, about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Lord of the Rings was a, a musical that, you know, came off another huge movie franchise of great right. success. And actually, in a way, has a theatricality in storytelling because you know the Hobbits in those plays—they've they, been stage plays before. There've been adaptations of those, not on not on the right. scale that we were talking about. Lord of the Rings, but Lord of the Rings comes out of the gate with A.R. Rahman involved as as, as as a composer. You know, a prolific um, Indian Bollywood composer, yeah, famous because yeah, yeah, he yeah. also wrote Bombay, Bombay Dreams. That. Uh, musical that, that was played in the West End and, and elsewhere. So he was engaged as a composer. Matthew Wartress, who has had you know, numerous successes as a, as a successful theatre director, and um, the idea that this would turn into a into a musical came with enormous excitement again. Same almost palpable buzz. At that point, I think it was most expensive musical to be put on stage. 
And right. it came to Toronto, where it played for a year in Toronto, where they worked on it for that whole year, and it played in a in a in a very successful run in Toronto with audiences. So, so it was basically workshopping at that time. It wasn't like it finished. was almost like playing, but doing like a year of workshopping. But it was playing performance run the whole time. Wow! And wow. then that production lifted, and it moved to the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. I can remember newspapers showing the photos of Middle Earth arriving at the theatre because the whole Middle Earth was like built out from the stage into the auditorium. <laughs> so you just feel like, I mean, I couldn't wait to get in to see this show. I mean, it was, you know, like, what is this going to be like? Well, it was very long. Remember that? I mean, the movies obviously are a lot to get through in terms right, of right. watch. But I mean, it was sort of a, a 7.30 in the evening, you know, nearly probably close on three and a half hour, four hour show. I thought it had some amazing stagecraft in it. It sort of, just didn't get embraced then by the critics and you know, the reviews were very negative, a lot like Spider-Man. It became very expensive to run as a show. Right. The buzz of it pilted out quite quickly. And yet right. you would have thought with Lord of the Rings and that title again, and uh, the buzz of following an audience would have come and seen it. And there was, oh, intrinsic, yeah. there was intrinsic book problems. There was obviously the fact that the effects and the tricks you can do, you can do a lot of stagecraft and tricks. But it's yeah. not always like watching a movie. And I think that's where, in a way, Harry Potter on stage has, has has perhaps worked over some of its other contemporaries. Because when you go and watch Harry Potter, John Tiffany, who's directed that, goes much more into almost like what feels at times Victorian stage magic. The, yeah. the things he's yeah. utilising are far more older-style theatre tricks, which mm-hmm. work incredibly well. So they... They, they don't apologize that they're inside a theater in any way. Te- <laughs> the technology is very tech is very technical in Harry Potter, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's a different feel to the technicality that perhaps you're yeah. trying to see in, 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 in Spider-Man. You know, it's funny you bring up Harry Potter and old school type of uh, magic. I actually got the opportunity to take a workshop with the master of illusions on that show. After, you know, a good 30 minutes of talking about what is magic and and why does magic work, he basically showed us how to slide of hand make a poker chip disappear. (laughs) And that was the, I'm like, this is like, you know, pulling a quarter from behind somebody's ear. Are you kidding me? This is what you're showing in Harry Potter that we in the show. But, okay. You know, it's it's also about how you you dress it up, and sometimes the the simplest thing can be absolutely amazing if you get the if you get the stagecraft and the, and and the and the trick right. Okay, now we've been talking about money, we've been talking about delays, we've been talking about artistic issues and everything that have kind of led to uh, some bad blood being sown around this. I have to turn it a little darker here. We got to talk about the bad stuff now. That initial preview period started November 25th, 2010. The new opening date had been announced as December 21st, 2010. However, on December 20th, one night earlier, stunt performer Chris Tierney was getting ready to perform a stunt. It's where Spider-Man is jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge to save Mary Jane. And, you know, I've seen it uh, in the bootleg videos that people have done, but I've seen it in the version we're going to talk about here in just a moment. Both of them took my breath away as far as just what they did. Because what happened here is Tierney is dressed as Spider-Man. He's running straight at the audience in slow motion as the floor beneath him is raising up under him very slowly. Now, underneath the floor is uh, his love interest, Mary Jane, and she's tied up and her hands are suspended over her head. And the bridge raised about 20 feet from the stage floor. So you see her dangling under there in a precarious position. 
And then I think they've written it as something of like a dream sequence where this huge green goblin set piece comes down and cuts the rope for Mary Jane and she is tumbling in uh, towards the water below, but she's really just falling below the stage to complete safety. Now what's supposed to happen for Spider-Man is that as he is getting to run up the bridge, he is fastened to a cable that is connected to a harness on his lower back and that cable is dead bolted to the floor. So that when he reaches the end of the bridge, there's just enough cable so that when he starts a jump, the cable goes taut and it looks like he's frozen in midair. And it's a really cool looking stunt, right? You've seen it a few times. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've only seen it in video and I went, that's yeah. amazing. On December 20th, that cable didn't happen. Tierney recalls that he had no idea he wasn't fastened to the cable until the moment he began his jump. And once he realized that there was no tension from the cable, he doubled over and attempted to grip the edge of the stage with his fingertips, but he already had too much forward momentum going. Tierney fell at least 20 feet to the stage and then threw it to the floor of the orchestra pit, all in all at least 30 feet, with no safety equipment to help slow the fall at all. Now, Tierney can also recall that while in midair, he knew he was upside down and that if he landed on his head, it could be fatal. Thus, this trained dancer and stunt performer did everything he could to twist himself midair to avoid landing on his head or neck. And when he fell through the stage floor, he landed squarely on his back in the orchestra pit. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think shocking. Also, I mean, devastating for him and shocking for the audience to watch it because... Oh, my God. Yeah. You, know, you realize that that's now gone really wrong. Yeah. Now, in the pit is Natalie Mendoza, the original actor playing Arachne. And she's getting ready to ascend out of the floor for her next entrance. She saw Tierney fall through the floor and land. And then to her recollection, because she probably went into some level of shock, it seemed like immediately she saw paramedics and EMTs take her unconscious cast member out on a stretcher with a neck brace after they had to cut him out of his costume. The yeah. lights went up in the house. And a voice came over the loudspeaker. That's our show for tonight, folks. Thanks for attending. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like it's trying to work out how you handle it. And it's probably not the best, not the best way to make the announcement at that particular moment. But it, yeah. you've got a panic that's descended at that particular second. Right. I can't remember on Spider-Man if they had a curtain so they could even drop the curtain in as to what was going on. Because, of course, one of the things is, you know, in a certain situation, you can mask the stage by closing it off with people being able to see what was happening. But because right. I think there was so much build in Spider-Man, I don't remember. I mean, they must have had a safety curtain that would be able I to think, drop it. I think there was a scrim. I think there was some scrim that they could uh, put down right at the proscenium that had like a splash page on it or something like that. But I have no idea if they did it at that time. I mean, they might have they might have had too many things already automated that they could not just go back and just say, okay, manual Q1, go. Now, Tierney was able to fully recover, but fractured several ribs, his elbow, one shoulder blade, and cracked his skull. And OSHA fined the production $12,600 for this occurrence. The, the amazing and fortunate thing was that, you know, he was obviously a very fit guy, yeah. an athlete who trained and, mm -hmm. and knew he was in trouble and was... You know, amazingly in that situation, able to try and at least not land on his head. And, and you know, otherwise you would have had a fatality in that situation. Right, right. Now that night, an audience member had captured the incident on video and the clip was playing on YouTube an hour later. So 
Here we have all this bad press against it already. Here comes a new whirlwind of bad press that descended upon the show. And some of the most vocal criticism came from the theater community via social media. Quote, Alice Ridley, who won a Tony playing Jen Damiano's mother in Next to Normal, tweeted, does someone have to die? And original Rent cast member Adam Pascal noted on Facebook, they should put Julie Taymor in jail for assault. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh... <laughs> It's Jim the part Dun- of social media, isn't it? That everyone right? feels them and they've got to say something. Right. And you're going, so, well, that's, those are Broadway people. They must know something. Yeah. And I'm not I mean, saying, you know, Alice, Alice Ridley and, and Adam Pascal are obviously, you know, they've had their careers and they, and they are quite gifted people. But when you're a lay person and you do not know these people, you have to take that as absolute truth, don't you? I think you do, but I wonder, and this would be an interesting thing, and you might know this, Aaron, in terms of historical stuff, or you may have found it out. I I don't know the answer, but it would be an interesting question to look. I wonder, after that incident, the next day, whether Spider-Man's box office went down or it went up, because the fact that it trails in all those those newspapers, there is a a strange, morbid, rather macabre style of the public, isn't there, that that actually wants to then start Mm -hmm. coming to see something, because maybe something could go wrong, and actually that becomes a... Yeah, another I was there kind of moment when this happened. Isn't that why a lot of times we go to sporting events anyway? We there's just this slim hope that something's going to go terribly wrong and we're going to be there to see it. I mean, who watches NASCAR and auto racing for the sport? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're saying that you know those those terrible crashes when you watch Speedway and all that sort of stuff. Right. There's the, 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 the element of that danger. So. It would be an interesting question, and uh, you know, to to to, want to to find out if the box office went down or went up the next day on Spider-Man mm-hmm. after all those mm-hmm. stories broke. There we go. That's what I was talking about. Schadenfreude. Now, needless to say, the opening was pushed back <laughs> to February seventh, twenty eleven, citing that the team was possibly cutting and or adding new scenes, reworking or completely redoing the ending, possibly cutting songs, basically a lot. So here you and are. I was going to say, don't forget it to turn into a Broadway community joke, this show. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, oh, there I'm was also there. the fact that the Broadway <laughs> community, so people like you know, Alice Ripley and Adam Pascal were also, you know, people were sort of rolling their eyes. Does, is this where Broadway's got to now? Is this where we are with the musical? And, you know, there was a, there was, there was mm-hmm. a positivity of this show rolling out, but this was not a show that was ever widely embraced by actually the Broadway, you know, theatre community itself. Even oh, no. When it was first announced. No, no. Because, I mean, really, when you're, when you're making a show a lot more about the spectacle than the performance and the full connection of all of the technical elements with that performance. Yeah, I can see where a lot of Broadway people would be like, so what's our job anymore? Now, here's a quote from the press release that pushed the opening back to February 7th, 2011. We simply need more time to fully execute the creative team's vision before freezing the show. We picked a date in March that allows us to ensure that this will be the final postponement. The show was then again postponed (laughs) and opening night was pushed back again until March 15th, 2011. And here's a uh, quote from that press release. This is in order to allow director Julie Taymor and company time to address the needs of the technically complex production, to fine tune the production and and instate a new ending. Really what was happening (laughs) was that comics writer and playwright Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, it's a hyphenated last name. He was brought on to completely retool the script with Glenn Berger's assistance. Aguirre Sacasa has seen some success with the revival and the rewrite of the book for It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman in 2010. 
Now, listeners might recognize his name as the creator of shows like Riverdale or The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So he's kind of got his finger on the pulse of like what younger audiences are tuning into. Now, more or less, his new version of the Spider-Man script would be the one that would be seen upon the play's eventual premiere. Here's this new version being basically written behind the, the scenes, but the original script still was playing in preview. The show was being promoted by its cable network partner, Sci-Fi, and viewers could enter contests to win tickets. The cast appeared on morning and late night talk shows, singing, and, uh, singing songs and performing dance numbers from the show. Lead Spider-Man actor Reeve Carney and Bono both appeared on the season finale of the 15th season of American Idol to perform a song from the show. So they're still really trying hard. And also, in, in truth, the, you know, the, the score itself didn't change that much. Uh, you know, there was, no! You know, the, 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 the main Spider-Man numbers and things didn't, didn't move really or, or change. It was more of the sort of storytelling of it. That was, right, that was right. They just kind of... Well. Yeah, moved him around. It was a bit of a shell. But, I mean, it must have been crazy doing one show at night and then and rehearsing another one in in the daytime. Right. I mean, you know, there is a there is a level of show doctrine that happens on many many musicals that come to the stage. But I mean, this well, right. was all on a completely different level. I mean, th the other thing with Spider Man is I would imagine some of the company as 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 tough and as difficult as this was, but with crew and and cars, they must have been making a hell of a lot of overtime. I mean, there oh my god, a lot of yeah. money being paid if you've got this going on at this yep. at this level at this time yeah but i mean you know for all of this sort of looking at it and saying what a mess i mean one has to applaud the producers that they weren't giving up right they were they right. were trying and there's your and, optimism yep you know there's a there's a fight in that 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 for all it's you know they weren't throwing the towel in and, and actually they they could have done at that particular point and they mm -hmm. they didn't right however they did have to make some decisions here on march 9th 2011, a press release from the producers and Bono and the Edge stated that Julie Taymor was being released as director from the production. She was being replaced by Philip William McKinley, who had experience in staging complex shows on Broadway and for Barnum and Bailey's Circus. So he's he can understand the complexity of all these flying things and everything. And then, you know, the story is already kind of telling itself. You have the actors already doing that. So he's trying to fix that. However, the press release that was issued did not contain a statement from Tamor, which usually indicates the director's agreement with the decision. From the scuttlebutt around her release, it sounds like Tamor wouldn't budge on any of the changes needed to make the show work, nor would she meet with any of the new collaborators brought in to assist. Now, these producers were actually really anxious to get this, uh, this show to launch at this point. Like you said, you know, good for them for sticking it out. But Tamor's story was a bit different. In what she now has dubbed Plan X in legal documents, she states that starting in February 2011, the production company operated in something of a duality, and not like the one we were talking about earlier, where we're rehearsing one show in the, uh, in the day and, and doing something else. Her claim was basically that she was allowed to make her own changes to the show as needed, but behind her back, everybody was working to basically rewrite the show without her consent. And according yeah. to Berger, this is somewhat true. <laughs> I mean, not necessarily secretly, but not necessarily openly. He had been working with everyone from the producers and investors to stagehands and rigging specialists to figure out how to get some of the really technically difficult elements to work, all while making the script a little less confusing to audiences. Yeah. Well, I mean, Berger's got more to lose than anyone else on this project in a way. Oh, yeah. Because, I, I mean, mean, he's... You know, Bono, The Edge, you know, they'll go back to their recording credits. Julie Taymor will 
will will continue with Lion King royalties and indeed you yeah. know other other directing opportunities. And look, you know, directors have have flops, maybe not always on such a, a public scale as right. Spider Man was. Although let's not forget, Spider Man was not a flop. Spider Man ran for 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 a period of time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Bertrand, you know, this was a, a a break, and in a way, you know, he, he probably knows that his neck is on the on yeah. on the line there. And actually, he's doing everything he can not to be sacked from it. And right. that's, you know, where he's probably going off and being very charming, I imagine, to the producers and saying, look, I'm, I'll do anything I can in this situation. Right. It's, right. Yeah. <laughs> Have I been saying it wrong this whole time? Is it actually Glenn Berger? I think it's Berger, but I might okay. I might be I might be wrong. Yeah, uh, we can go with know. that. I'm happy to, to, I'm happy to be, I'm happy to be corrected. I'm probably saying it in the English way. Who knows? Who knows? Now for, for Berger, the answer for the script started to come from somebody who just made one simple suggestion. We've already talked about it in this episode. That big fight between Spider-Man and Green Goblin in the original script happened at the end of act one. So all they had to do was move it to the end of the show. And that's what they did. I mean, it, it, it leads everything to like the most technically complex thing that you're doing on stage and you're saving it till the end, right? Well, it, effectively, it's your 11 o'clock number and you're putting yes. it in the sky on right. stage. In fact, they could, they could have benefited from having actually a, a sung 11 o'clock number. But what right. they've actually done is they've moved, they've moved an 11 o'clock number to the ceiling. Right. Now, that simple suggestion just started to make all the other parts seem to fall in where they should. And just maybe not where they originally were, but just in different places. So they moved it around a little bit. And let's not forget a, a director coming to this with great circus experience is going to also always re- remember that when you put the circus on, you want to leave your best stunt and trick to the end. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's your, your build-up and your climax. Yep, so he's absolutely realized that if you've got this incredible flying system, and it was very impressive, this this last chase and fight between you know, oh, yeah. Green Goblin and Spider-Man. And when, you know, you know, Green Goblin, I think, or Spider-Man landed on the back of the other one in the sky. I mean, it was, yep. it was an impressive piece of flying to watch. Yep. And then, and, and, and then with all of these changes, they could actually start to fit Arachne's story in. And it could more or less be preserved as like her taunts to Spider-Man. It was her way to be a villain in the story and have him have a hero's fight against another villain in the story. So it really all began to work again. And this was going to be the script that was going to be seen on the opening night, June 14th, 2011. Or they started to call this version 2.0. Now, between March and June 2011, while the show was being completely redone, Tamor filed suit against a production company claiming she still had significant amount of original content for which she should receive credit and restitution. Not only that, she made accusations towards the production company that they removed about 30 pages of her script contributions without her approval. She was able to settle out of court in April 2013, two years later, for $36,000 for her writing credit in the original storyline and $125,000 for a director's fee. And she got to keep her credit in the playbill as the original director. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can imagine that, you know, there's a feeling of humiliation and you know, battle with it all. And, and I mean, obviously oh, by this point, you know, how many years had she worked on that show and that situation? As, nine. As well. She had yeah, worked on I it mean, nine years. I, I can imagine that you would feel very, you know, dejected by what's gone on now, and and it would leave a it would leave a bad te- 
taste in your mouth and also because everyone is so close to that project or has been so you know enmeshed yep. in it, it, it it's hard sometimes to step back and see that perspective and and i think more so than than ever because there was this strange broadway stigma about that whole show i mean i think it took until what was it m butterfly a couple of years ago uh, mm. the david henry harang play which was the, mm-hmm. the the next time she'd stepped back onto broadway i don't think she's done oh it. really i don't think she did anything between I mean, she obviously did some, some film and she did some film, work, yeah, yeah. But I don't think she did another stage work between Spider Man and 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 M Butter. Oh man, which actually I enjoyed that production very much, but it didn't yeah. uh, it didn't run the course as it as it should have done on Broadway. You know, uh, it, it, there's a big there's a big gap there. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, for her car, her part, she was connected to this production for the better part of nine years from. Mm. 2002 when it was just initially conceived to the opening night June 14th 2011 and she attended the opening night gala now the reception of the play upon its opening was well at least not as bad as the preview opening many of the plot holes in the script were fixed and the technical elements still seemed to please the audiences even former Fox News personality Glenn Beck reported on social media several times how much he enjoyed the play and also, now the newspapers themselves know the show ain't closing yet. Right. So the, the advertising revenue kicks in. But of course, now that the play is running too, the challenge of the production is to make up the massive amounts of money that it lost in all the delays. It was said that even at its current pace of weekly expenditures, the $1.4 million, the play would have to sell out the 1,900-seat theater every performance for the next three to four years in order to recruit not just a majority, but all of its costs. So beyond the weekly $1.4 million they had to spend, here's something of a breakdown of what the budget entailed. $9.7 million for, co- for sets and costumes, $4.4 million just to rent the Foxwoods Theater for two years before the opening, and $2.2 million just for the flying equipment. And here's a here's another little just fun piece of trivia. The production did set one impressive record, the longest preview period of any Broadway production before or since, with 182 performances in preview before the official opening. Longer mm-hmm. than Superman actually ran. Yeah, that's a <laughs> lot of previews. That's a lot of previews. Now, very much, uh, very much unlike that Superman musical we've discussed throughout this episode in the last, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark did not close right away, despite somewhat lukewarm reviews for version 2.0. Tickets kept selling, but like you were saying, not necessarily to that New York audience. They'd already seen it. They've heard enough about I, it. I'm not necessarily to theater goers. You know, I mean, like a, a Broadway yeah. audience, a Broadway theater goer might just go because they've heard they better go and see it, so they go right. and see it. You're talking about two things with a, a long-running musical. You're talking about tourist ticket, and you're talking about repeat audience. Right. So you know people right. will come and say, "Wow, that was that was great." I've got to come back again and bring two or three other friends to come and see it. Yep. And mm-hmm. you know there there are shows that that can become effectively a tourist attraction in that way and sit there and take a long mm-hmm. way comfortably. And, and actually, Spider Man had it got its break figure better in its weekly running weekly running <laughs> cost break figure better. Could have actually been that show. Yeah. yeah. Well. A lot of people also suggest that the tourism money brought in for this was about seeing a car crash, you know? Yeah, I, I agree to an extent, but I don't agree mm-hmm. to an extent because I think at the, at the moment when it first happened, when the accident first happened and things and those stories were there, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, perhaps there was a morbid curiosity, but, you know, a morbid curiosity at what, a premium Broadway ticket price. Right, right. I don't think yeah. there's so many people who are, are that interested no. in spending money to necessarily do that. I think actually what you've got is 
is the ability to have straddled a tourist audience and you know in, in a way you know it's sat on 42nd street straight opposite was madame tussauds right in a way you're, you're right. going for exactly the same tourist tickets of those those markets and if i remember correctly michael cole who took over as the producer actually did have a lot of very natty initiative and clever ideas for marketing one of oh, which yeah. i think spider-man was the first show to advertise ever on a Broadway pizza uh, on a on a New York pizza box. Oh, you were so saying you that, ordered, yeah. If you ordered your pizza in Queens or Brooklyn, and you may not have been, you know, an inherent theatre goer, along came your pizza to get delivered, and and there there on it was an advert, advert for Spider Man, and you were going straight probably into the heart of an, an audience member who might right. be interested in coming to see that show. The only thing I can think close to that that did something similar was Slava Pulin, the great Russian clown who came with an amazing show <laughs> called Slava's uh, Slava's Snow Show that played for. Uh, quite a long season at a theatre in Union Square and off-Broadway show. And the producer on that show took the idea of advertising on the side of milk cartons. Oh, yeah, a, yeah. Again, a very clever idea, you know. You sit down in New York and you have your breakfast and you're looking as you, as you pour your milk and eat your cereal, staring at you in the face as an advert for a Broadway show. Um, <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but, you know, Michael Cole, I think, was very clever because I think the pizza boxes is an interesting one because, of course, again, you're possibly targeting an audience or a reach. That may not be necessarily your your you know regular Broadway right, theatre guy. Right, and and you know you hit on something. I I don't know if we recorded it or not. He's the hometown hero. You're talking about a hero that is so iconically New York. Yeah. Now that you're if you're reaching out to people who are from New York, they're like, yeah, I'll go see my hero that I can see myself in. I grew up yeah. in the neighborhood he grew up in, and I'd like to see that. Because, you know, maybe I have it tattooed on me or something like it's just it's, and, it's, and, and, you know, you're going into the heart of a, of a neighborhood. Right. And actually, pizza boxes, strangely, can do that and, and get that reach that maybe other pieces of advertising can't necessarily do in the same way. So I, I have to mention it. You know, yeah, we mentioned, yeah, they, they made up some of their costs. But the unfortunate thing about doing a show like that is there is a huge margin of error. So speaking of injuries, <laughs> all told, there were six major injuries that occurred. I already told you about Chris Tierney's fall and in the previous episode, Natalie Mendoza got a concussion on opening preview night. During the rehearsal period, two of the flying actors had significant injuries. And during previews, Spider-Man stunt double Kevin Aubin broke both his wrists in the middle of a stunt and another actor was reported to have broken both his feet in the same stunt a month earlier. So there's one of those, let's cut that stunt. <laughs> yeah, again, I mean, look, it's interesting, isn't it? it that They were big, a lot of them, I mean, the, the broken wrists, I remember, they were big stories. But I mean, right. let's not forget, when Starlight Express, the roller skating musical that ran for you know, a, a deck and longer than a deck. I think around for about seventeen years in the end in the mm -hmm. West End. The the injury rate on that show was absolutely astronomic with people. Right. You know, you know, and so again, it's what gets latched on and what's what gets reported to. The thing about Spider Man yes. was everyone was waiting for an accident. Yep. Were there more accidents on Spider Man than other shows? Well, it's certainly a more technically complicated show, so the argument mm -hmm. might well be yes, there was. It's just that Spider Man, because it's largely stunt related. Mm -hmm. It gets a slightly different level of, of coverage that's also springboardy. And also because eyes are on Spider-Man now. Yeah. Something else, and, and they've already yeah. reported one big accident. So it's just like we can whip that story up on, a, on, a, on another thing that's happened. Yep. Yep. And I think it was uh, Joan Rivers 
who used to open her uh, stand-up act by saying, let's all take a moment of silence for all of the actors performing in Spider-Man tonight. <laughs> so here's a, here's a couple more incidents. When Natalie Mendoza, after she saw Chris Tierney fall through the floor, she quit the show. When she left, she was replaced by the actor TV Carpio. Carpio suffered a neck injury in March 2011, but made a full recovery and returned to the show. So like you were saying, Starlight Express, roller skates, they break an ankle or something, they come back. But the big one after all of this was in August 2013, dancer Daniel Curry's foot was caught and crushed under a hydraulic press that was intended to lift him from the orchestra pit to the stage. Apparently someone put it in reverse. So he required several surgeries and most of his foot was removed and replaced with other tissues. He sued the producers for negligence, but most of the technical staff scratched their heads, basically stating everything should have worked perfectly. We don't know what happened. Curry's suit was settled out of court in 2015 after two years of litigation, and I could find nothing on the results of the decision other than a statement from the law firm stating that they were glad Curry could now continue with his life. Yeah. <laughs> but he was a dancer. Half his foot is gone. You know. And they're dangerous places to work theaters. I think we sometimes forget oh, yeah. how much stuff is going on, how much stuff's flying around above your head when you're doing a show and mm -hmm. things. I mean, on a show that's as technical as that, you know, it's why you've really got to make sure everything is as right. carefully checked and double checked right. and triple checked as possible. You, you would think that there, well, I mean, I would think health and safety on, on Spider-Man and those shows must have been, you, you would think they must have been, you know, very much on the case with it, but inevitably... Yeah. You know, there's something here that, 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 that with this spate of several accidents is, is obviously needing to be looked at closely. Right. Well, that is one reason that they decided to close the show. They could no longer afford the insurance. Yeah. Now, there's all another reason as well, I think, with Spider-Man, though, which is important about looking at it. Because Spider-Man was having a pretty good run. I mean, they were they were selling tickets. And this is what we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. And I think, and you, you might be coming to the, the point, that I think they scored the highest Broadway yes. week of a show. I, I don't have the actual numbers, but I, I want to say it was somewhere around 2.2 million. Yeah, so the highest grossing week. Now, that's great, but it can also create a, a bit of an illusion for you because you yeah. have that first year when a show starts. It's the same as if it's in a sort of tourney season, so people are talking about it. The thing mm -hmm. about it is that the longevity comes from how you keep the momentum to keep your position on the, the great white way uh, after that first year when a huge wrath of new shows are coming and people are writing about the season. Right. So if you've got that first year where you're attracting that attention, it, it's great, but there will be a point where people stop writing about you. So you have to yeah. do something that's going to infuse people to still want to write about you. Mm -hmm. And if you don't act on that situation, be it that you change it with casting, be it that you do something within that, the show will actually then start to hit a point where it can start to limp quite badly. And, yeah. and the problem with Spider-Man is on certain shows, if it drops, but the, 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 the running cost and the figure is still manageable, you can probably still keep it going. So you'll have some good weeks and you'll have some not great weeks. But because right. Spider-Man's running cost was so high every week, oh, yeah. it had an impossible target always always to hit. So really Spider-Man, what it needed to do for its next year was to actually find a, a meatloaf as, or a, a, a Alice Cooper <laughs> or a, you know, a, a, one, of the, one of those guys, Gene Simmons, to come as the Green Goblin. Uh, and yeah. actually find something that was fooling audiences so that they would still be keeping it in the column mm -hmm. interest that they were writing about. And of course, Spider-Man, I think because it had probably had that great week. I think that was the opening week. I think yeah. it was opening week that they made that 
2.2 god i want to say it's like 2.26 yeah. or something I, like I that i know but they yeah, had some pretty good four weeks and around thanksgiving time and things from what i remember mm-hmm. i think they were doing pretty good pretty good box office well yeah and, i mean around holiday times when people yeah. can actually make those trips yeah here's some epilogues all in all the play ran until january 4th 2014 so it got a good two and a half years almost three and let's be clear this show was not a flop no no. Because it didn't open and close and it didn't run that, that way. It, it, uh, it, it didn't perhaps click in the way it should have done. Right. It, it, is, it is not that there are other musicals that have played for less time, which you would not call a flop show. Right. I think where they do think it's a flop is strictly the numbers. The final budget for the play was noted at $75 million, And it is suggested that the production lost $60 million overall. Yeah. On the plus side, though, the play was nominated for two Tony Awards in 2012, Best Costume Design and Best Set Design. Costume Design lost to Follies and Set lost to Peter and the Starcatcher. Don't forget they'll capitalize on this Tony-nominated production. Oh, yeah. It's that yeah. wonderful thing you see outside you see outside theaters where it keeps flashing <laughs> Tony nominated production, which of course yeah. is sometimes in a, in a category that's not best musical or any of those things. It's just drawing on the, on, <laughs> right. the, on, on, on the nomination within that. You know? Yeah. No major productions of Spider-Man turn off the dark have been produced since it would, I mean, it would have been an amazing story to have gone off and then seen it with the Tony musical nomination because it would have been that story of you know disaster coming back and 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 coming. It would have made an amazing Broadway story. Oh yeah, absolutely. But the, in truth, the show probably wasn't you know strong enough to achieve that. And then right. there may have been a stigma behind the Broadway community that would never have awarded that by the nature of the fact that there was too much bad smell around this show with the accidents and things. Yep. It would have looked like you yep. were condoning stuff now that had gone on. Well, um, and not only with accidents, you have the director being released from the show. You yeah. have the producer, the original producer dying. His replacement had to be removed and they had to bring in somebody else who could fuel tons of cash into it. it yeah, it had such a bitter taste. But in fairness, it was not the worst musical that has oh. ever been produced. And it, so, you know, and that, Here's, uh, here's how I would, uh, I'm ending my spark part of the script, and then we'll talk a little bit more. But um, I was going to end with the no major productions have been scheduled or have been produced. However, I saw this comment, and it brought it full circle for me. A YouTube comment in a bootleg recording of the full musical states the following. This show has a plethora of narrative issues. It doesn't understand the character and his mythos at its core. But God damn it, one of the Spider-Man actors waved at 10-year-old me on the balcony and I will never be the same. End quote. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. And, and I mean, I guess it makes the interesting question, will Spider-Man come back again? Who knows? I, I actually think maybe one day we might see Spider-Man on a stage somewhere again. Oh, you think, I think so? It's a show that, I think it is a show that at some point has a better... I mean, if you compare it to, say, another musical that followed on after it which was equally you know sort of quite spectacular when it came to its end but when they tried to do rocky on stage oh um, yeah and yeah. it came to the winter garden theater and i actually like quite other score of rocky i mean it's a lynn aarons and, and stephen flaherty musical and of course they great writers of ragtime funny enough a, a former a former tenant of the same theater as spider-man was ragtime, right. a little bit more a little bit more successful than than, than, than spider-man at the tony's <laughs> a little um, bit <laughs> but um i think if you were putting those two shows side by side 
I think you've got a better chance of seeing Spider-Man being picked up by the fans and and people right. at some point and having right. another go with it. In fact, Rocky and Spider-Man do show a synergy of the fact that, you know, again, it's men predominantly coming to watch those shows right. mm-hmm. and actually does the wife or the girlfriend or the mum who's coming to to New York for their weekend want to go and see that or would they prefer to go right. and see you know another show that they might want to be choosing so rocky struggled to find its 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 audience demographic and, and yeah connect. yeah um but it was pretty spectacular to watch them in the the, the boxing fight at the end was really amazing how they they pulled it out into the auditorium and the, the auditorium virtually converted before your eyes with people oh wow on stage just sit as if they were in the arena watching the the last part of the show so but there was a i thought a very good book structure in places with that and uh there was some uh you know very nice music in that in that in that score i think ultimately mm-hmm. as a piece it, it's it's fairly flawed and maybe you know spider-man sits with the same problems perhaps you just simply can't replicate a show like that very easily on on, on stage yeah maybe i mean and and like you're saying it is such a beloved world you know it's such a beloved universe that yeah there might be the draw there might be somebody who is able to squeeze some milk out of that still but i don't know i don't know i mean it to me it's one of those ones where you have what you have and when you say we're gonna do something can you actually do it and make it successful or not you know when when we get this package on our desk richard of I'm going to make a Spider-Man musical. Bono and the Edge are already attached to it. And they're talking about Julie Tamo for directing. I still, I, I, I kind of bulk and go, yeah, but what's this going to cost? And can we actually do that? Yeah, I, I think you, you probably do look at that. But I think there is also that fact of saying, wow, could I be the the producer or the <laughs> investor who gets involved with Spider-Man? Look at how much this franchise has made. How could it, how could it possibly fail? Right. Uh, you know, I think it's it it is an attractive hand if you were being well, offered it. I, but I, mean, I think it would come down to looking closely at the numbers. But as we as we know, sometimes today on Broadway, the budget doesn't seem to always be the most important thing. It's right. more the fact of you know how investment sometimes works. When investors you know want to have that accolade that I produced that show, it's a change in how the Broadway theater business works i mean let's not forget we work in a business that's called show business show business so sometimes we sometimes remember the show and the business side sometimes gets forgotten a little bit more mm-hmm. i think right. to be honest i think you and i if we'd looked at the numbers we might have scratched our heads at saying how can this show possibly sell and and at the at the budget that it is right. and the cost it's going to cost to put on the stage mm-hmm. but let's not forget that if you present it it's it's probably got a lot more going in its favor than a lot of other shows where you think in a oh yeah in a, in a market of, of attracting audience and guess what you know this could run for five years or it could run for 10 years it, it could be the next cats right i suspect we of the web crusader we may not have seen <laughs> the end of his appearance on 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 you know, on on the musical stage somewhere. On the musical all, stage. I think what it will come down to is two things. It will come down to the fans coming back and embracing it. And it will also come to it with, you know, younger people also embracing that show, much in the way as a show like Carrie, 88, 1988 musical, that came and was a fabled flop on Broadway, got picked up. It's had its little sort of Carrie version done on the Riverdale TV show. Right. But if you talk to students in a lot of american universities and colleges and indeed elsewhere they connect with that story and right, it's really yeah. embraced and, and yet you know unlike spider-man there isn't the the footage 
on the net to actually right. there's the nothing there's nothing there's, there's, there's no cast recording of carrie there's no concept album but that was really the first time people were hearing that score and yet it has been picked up and it's become a real you know loved and beloved score and and, yep. and, it's, and it's whether the story of peter parker that kid who's trying to fit in and, and growing up gets embraced again by that musical college kid who sits right. down and says wow i i was good because actually they may be also the glue to what you know re-energizes a show like spider-man the one thing is <laughs> one just doesn't know if the the stigma of spider-man is is toxic and it's well and see know, that's that's one thing that concerns me about it is that you know after talking about it and looking at all the things that went wrong that was that production does that mean that the book and the and the music are unperformable. And that's a question that yeah. I I don't think it probably is. I think you've just got to come at it with a new way. And don't forget with Carrie, I think it was over twenty years before they they that they came back with a with a different production and, right. and they sort of they got they got the myth about it all. But actually when you watched Carrie and I saw that off Broadway revival. But I, I, I couldn't wait to go and see it because I'd never seen the original production. You came out of it saying, score of Carrie, there's actually really quite a lot to like about it. Mm-hmm. And actually when I listen, I mean, concept album of Spider-Man, yeah, I occasionally have it on my, uh, on my iPod. I said, it's, it's, it's quite a, a, not an unpleasant album to listen to. And, and so right. some of the tracks sit out and, 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 and connect with you in a certain way. What mm-hmm. we talked about in our previous conversation is the, the, the 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 structure of of you two write songs with beginning middles and in ends and their numbers which is what makes them so well on a strong on a concept album they yeah. just don't necessarily thread as in the way as perhaps some other composers who often write an album and it all interlinks if you take someone like pete townsend with with tommy or something like that they had a plan um, from beginning a, to end yeah yeah but as a concept album they're actually all very nice standalone songs and quite nice to listen to and it will yeah. be if people pick them up and, and embrace those, those songs again and, and it might mean that someone does somewhere in 20 years time say perhaps we should come back maybe enough time has passed that we do need to come back and uh, well, and maybe it'll get rediscovered as a as a lost classic. I don't know whether it will to quite that space. I think it will get more of a curiosity to it. But yeah. the fact that it ran for three years on Broadway does mean that a lot of people got to see it. The thing about Carrie was, of course, it opened and closed very quickly. So yeah. a lot of people never got to see that show. And it was before social media existed. So there really aren't the the, the web pieces to, to to watch on it and things. Right. But it doesn't mean that with Spider-Man in 20 years' time, there's still people who've heard about this show who still are curious enough to try and want to see it in some way on the stage. Right. It depends how sniffy people will be about it, you know. And <laughs> right. The thing about it is that Broadway musical theatre fans don't particularly embrace that score. Yeah. And it yeah. means that you've got to have to find a different audience that's going to do that. And, and that's right. where actually, if you can connect it with the fans... And you can mm-hmm. find a young audience that's sitting there and is excited by that score. Perhaps the, perhaps the show has got a chance. But I well, think it, we won't see it on a stage for quite some time. <laughs> I, yeah, I can agree with that. But, you know, Marvel has now also, like the Marvel movies, have shifted the figureheads, whereas Spider-Man was the Marvel hero forever. Now you have to pick. We have Iron Man now, and he's this huge, iconic film thing. You have Thor, you have Captain America, and now we have a new Captain America. We have all these things that we have to now embrace about it. Spider-Man is one of those characters who is, because he has been popular for so long, when is that thing going to speak to the zeitgeist again? Yeah, and you know what? That might also come back to the fact that maybe Spider-Man's next incarnation is in a country like Japan, South Korea, or somewhere in Europe, because Mm -hmm. you're talking about 
very iconic American superheroes. Oh, yeah. So maybe yeah. America might embrace Spider-Man coming back on its stage as much as, funny enough, it might pop up in, as an event in one of mm-hmm. those one of those countries with a new book and right. and, and, and revision. And, and maybe that, because, you know, I, I think there would be probably quite a lot of curiosity from audiences in the UK to see Spider-Man in, in London. And, and let's not forget the fact that a lot of those people aren't aware always of all the stories that appeared so many years ago in the newspapers in America. Right, because right. The story broke at the time, but it's not, it's not a remembered one right. in the way that, you know, those who live in New York are perhaps quite close to it all and, and would roll their eyes when you... Mm-hmm. you mention the show again and at this point it's been 10 years since it opened yeah. so i mean we might still say well i heard that first one didn't go so well yeah but yeah let's give this one a shot yeah there's a whole <laughs> new generation of theater goers and, right. and comic book fans out there. oh man so. what a story yeah. <laughs> man <laughs> so maybe if the answer to the case is that perhaps it's not quite turn off the dark yet it yeah might be a, you know, there might still be a there might still be a little bit of a light somewhere a little bit out of a, there dark that we can still leave on (laughs) awesome well richard this has been a fun dissection of one of the most interesting stories to come out of broadway and i really appreciate your time and your input on this i just love talking with you about uh stuff like this your experience your passion for the the art form and your uh your knowledge of everything it's just fantastic so i really look forward to doing this with you again sometime it was an absolute pleasure and i think we got into the thick of it really I think absolutely I came, I came out thinking about a lot of things differently about about that show as well so it's been interesting to go back and and revisit it again and, mm-hmm. and as i say aaron it's it's an amazing story it's uh, oh man a story that you know you couldn't quite you couldn't quite believe of how it all links and how it all joins together and of course there is also the great book song of spider-man that was published yep. as well the, the diary of that show which is a yep. fantastic is a fantastic read um yeah and that's how, a pr- how, that's how, a how journey will happen. it's primary source for this episode um i'll have that on the website once uh once this episode launches so all right well my fans and listeners this will be the end of this episode two-part our first two-part episode of Euripides Humanities, and hopefully we get you back here next time. But until then, I'm Aaron Odom, and I will see you at intermission. Hey friends, this is your host Aaron Odom coming at you again. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode, and if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you pick this podcast up, or go ahead and like, share, subscribe, all the cool stuff you do with podcasts. We are Trident Theater, that's T-H-E-A-T-R-E. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at our website, www.tridenttheater.com. Once again, this is Aaron Odom. And we try to get a new episode out every two weeks. So hope to see you again in a fortnight.